have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Thanks for listening to Episode 5 of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world. We will look at the conflicts that emerged in response, the legal and security reforms that changed people's lives and societies, the impacts on our culture and our politics. We will hear from people who have experienced the ripple effects, as well as experts who documented and analyzed them. Episode 4 rounded off three episodes looking at how war on terror played out in key battlegrounds. This fifth episode considers how the war on terror evolved as problems mounted looking at the rise of remote warfare and countering violent extremism programs. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Delina Gojo. And I'm Larry Atri. This episode is called Evolutions. So as we heard in the past four episodes, through the period from 2005 to 2010, in many of these main battlegrounds in which the war on terror was playing out, like, for example, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, things hadn't been going very well. Terror threats weren't subsiding, and armed movements affiliated to Al-Qaeda were emerging and they were growing stronger as well. There hadn't been another 9-11, but there had been a steady incidence of terror attacks. On the other hand, the leaders backing the war on terror could point to some success in killing or capturing top Al-Qaeda leaders and disrupting their networks so that they were more preoccupied by survival than plotting successful attacks. Some important plots were also being foiled, such as the plan by Al-Qaeda to detonate explosives disguised as soft drinks on multiple airliners flying from Britain to the US and Canada five years after 9-11. And people came to doubt the possibility of killing their way out of war. Al-Qaeda seemed like a many-headed hydra, cut off one of the heads, and it would grow another two. Others describe this as balloon effect, squeeze it in one place and it pops out elsewhere. So amid all the fighting, the militarization of affected countries, and given also the problematic behavior of allies, underlying grievances were getting worse rather than being addressed. Another challenge was that in Western countries, public support for the open-ended war and for troop losses was waning, particularly regarding Iraq. From 2005, more Americans began to think invading Iraq had been the wrong call than thought it was the right one. Transnational violent movements like Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Al-Shabaab were also leaping with both feet into the age of social media. Faced with the growth and the spread of violent non-state groups abroad and a public at home that was very war-wary, a number of Western leaders, and particularly Obama, looked at ways to change the nature and to change the momentum of the ongoing wars. We cannot use force everywhere that a radical ideology takes root. And in the absence of a strategy that reduces the wellspring of extremism, a perpetual war through drones or special forces or troop deployments will prove self-defeating and alter our country in troubling ways. So the next element of our strategy involves addressing the underlying grievances and conflicts that feed extremism, from North Africa to South Asia. 
in this sense, what Obama was trying to rally the public around was what he saw as a smarter approach. Targeted action against terrorists, effective partnerships, diplomatic engagement, and assistance. So as Obama was explaining here, the war on terror was evolving. This episode explores two of those evolutions. First, an effort to sanitize still assertive prosecution of the war on terror, with emphasis on reasserting its legality, pushing for lower civilian casualties, if not always achieving them, and where possible bringing troops home, but all the while maintaining this growing reliance by the US and their allies on remote warfare tactics. And then the second evolution, the embrace of countering violent extremism efforts, first by the US and the UK, and then by the EU, the UN, and pretty much everyone else, which it was claimed would concentrate on tackling the wellspring of extremism non-militarily. Reckoning with 9-11. Now, Abigail Watson is joining us for this section. Regular listeners to Warpod will know you, Abby, as one of the usual co-presenters of the podcast, as well as one of the lead scholars studying the phenomenon of remote warfare. Can you explain for us a little bit more about what remote warfare is and to what degree it's a trend that's been ongoing since before 9-11, or is it a new thing that we can really connect to the consequences of 9-11 that we're looking at in this series? So the, the best way to understand remote warfare is it's what you do when you still want to militarily fight terrorist groups, but you don't have the political will either internationally or domestically to support you, or you recognise the, the problems of counterterrorism wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you're seeking to address them. So one of the ways that policymakers sought to address them was to focus on getting personnel, their own personnel, as far from the front line as possible. Leaders in the US and elsewhere, like in the UK, were worried that legislatures and populations were turning against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as the failures of those two campaigns was becoming more and more obvious. And these same policymakers were increasingly looking at how to reduce the number of their own soldiers fighting and dying abroad. Yet while Western governments remained reluctant to deploy their own troops, they continued to be concerned about terrorist groups plotting another 9-11 from conflict-affected contexts around the world. And so continued wrongly to see military means as one of the key ways that you could address these threats, but didn't want to put too many of their own forces on the ground to do it. So faced with these competing interests, the US and its partners reached for a variety of remote warfare techniques. So initially the mainstream debate on remote warfare focused on drones, which seemed to epitomise the distance being put between Western forces and the front line of the battlefield. But this was part of a broader trend, which involved a number of other techniques. So airstrikes and air support by manned aircraft, small deployments of special operations forces, either training or working alongside local and national forces, or the use of private military contractors and security contractors, intelligence sharing with state and non-state partners involved in frontline fighting, and supporting local security forces, either official state forces, militias, or paramilitaries, for example, through the provision of training, equipment, or both. Now, it's important to recognise that all of these techniques weren't invented for remote warfare. They were all used even throughout 
Iraq and Afghanistan and much before some of these techniques have been used long into antiquity. But I think key in understanding remote warfare as a concept and not just a collection of these different types of deployments was that the two things it allowed policymakers to do was first, it allowed Western policymakers to keep counter-terrorism campaigns away from public debate. They didn't need approval by parliament or Congress and light footprint deployments are rarely discussed in mainstream media unless something goes really wrong. And second, they also shifted the responsibility to partners, be they state forces or local militia. A speech by President Barack Obama in Ethiopia in 2015 championed Kenya, Ethiopia and Uganda for engaging threats in their region so that Western forces didn't have to put their own boots on the ground. They were all part of this shift of distancing our own personnel from the front lines of conflict and relying more on local forces. I think it'd be interesting now to get some more insight from another guest, Dan Mahanti. Dan, you are currently with CIVIC, which is the Center for Civilians in Conflict. But during the Obama years, you were with the State Department working to help correct some of the excesses of war on terrorism. Yeah, thanks, Delina. Thanks so much for having me. I um, really appreciate it. Um, and what I'd like to do is, is start by actually going back to the time in which some of these programs really started to emerge. Um, so I'll take us back to 2008. And I think it's worth recalling for a moment sort of what was happening in that moment. Um, so first you had a political context in which you had a presidential election uh, when President, now, you know, President Obama was running uh, against John McCain. You had an election where the main public, the main question for public debate um, and the question from the challenger was not, you know, should we be so focused on countering terrorism at that time? But number one, what are the most, you know, are the most visible expressions of the George Bush global war on terror, uh, namely torture in Guantanamo, really aligned with our values as a country? And number two, uh, has the war in Iraq, you know, too far distracted our country from its most counterterrorism objectives? Um, so we were at that time really still, you know, sort of... Uh, obsessed with countering terrorism in many ways in a way that it was still dominant in kind of the public discourse, but you did have a, sh have a shift in kind of the, the tenor and narrative around what should be done about it. Um, and at the same time, right around that time, you had within the counterterrorism bureaucracy, a kind of consensus that was really, I think, hardening on kind of two foundational premises. So one, that cooperation among government partners was going to be critical to countering a shared threat of terrorism globally. And I think that started very soon after the attacks of 9-11 and by 2008 was more or less conventional wisdom. And that two, terrorism could be seen as kind of a global insurgency rather than a, you know, a kind of tactical political tool that was being used by local groups, in which case, you know, you really needed to place a stronger premium on monitoring for signs of vulnerability in communities and countries around the world, and more or less trying to provide alternatives everywhere around the world through social and even economic programs. I think those ideas started to gain a lot of currency because they sound very benign and even you know progressive. You could have, you know, in the United States, you could have Democrats and Republicans both getting behind that. Um, and they really started to gain a lot of traction. I think those premises, while they seem benign, really uh, harmfully conceal some of the deeper sources of problems that were later to, to come about, and I think what we're, we're reckoning with now. By settling on these particular areas of agreement, governments really granted themselves 
pretty broad license to look past the actual global crisis of bad governance and, and a kind of failures of legitimacy where you know, around the world, corrupt elites had really captured control of governments and were using security forces and security services to preserve uh, their power and their access to kind of their ability to, you know, seek rents from the public. And really in doing so, you know, not to provide excuses to, to violent groups, but in a way kind of inviting violent movements into existence uh, through their lack of legitimacy and accountability. You know, and I think evidence will show now that, it, you know, present at the creation of this new era of counterterrorism, we're some of the most abusive governments in the world, at least as far as the U.S. goes. You know, the emphasis on partnership and cooperation really gave way to providing lethal counterterrorism support in some of the places where the risk of human rights abuses was most acute. What was the logic underpinning this increasing embrace of remote warfare by the U.S. government, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think Abby you know, really hits on, you know, the fundamental reasons why a policy like this would be so appealing in the United States government, but also, I think, elsewhere. For my own part, you can distill it, at least, I think, between 2008 and, and 2016, which is not to say that, you know, the Obama administration was uniquely responsible for, for starting it. And certainly, um, you know, there have been many years since then. But I do think you kind of start to see these, um, these core premises that get that kind of dig into the policy apparatus and and have remarkable resiliency and endurance um, because they are so appealing. So one, you know, Abby mentioned all the reasons why it's appealing just for the way that you can kind of avoid the political and, and even tactical risk to the to your own forces. Um, but I think from a political point of view, you can see how the international dimension could be very appealing uh, to an administration that really wanted to, you know, bolster American credentials for working with with other governments and partners, not only through security cooperation, but the uh, the multilateral dimension through the the major international organizations where you know counterterrorism became a priority at the UN and elsewhere. You can see how the emergence and kind of evolution of technology. Uh, during this time lent itself not only to the perspective that you could reduce risk, but also that you could really limit the harm uh, that was uh, experienced by civilians and, and people in other countries through the use of kind of you know, precision warfare and, and drone strikes, um, which became more transparent during the Obama administration, but also, I think, in many ways uh, proliferated in part because they were perceived uh, as being kind of a magical solution. And then in third, I think, um, maybe underappreciated is the extent to which bureaucratic inertia um, is really hard to roll back. So I think some of this wasn't just allowed to persevere because there was a, like a positive support for it, but also because once programs are born into existence, whether that's security cooperation or the drone program uh, or anything else, uh, they tend to take on a, a bureaucratic life of their own. So I think that there's some other variables that may come into play. Thanks, Dan and Abby. That paints a really vivid picture of some of what's been going on and also a sense of the seductions of the approach less bad than regime change less boots on the ground less risks more load sharing can you just open up for us a little bit some of the risks to remote warfare whether that's to the success of the war on terror or to broader factors like stability or the welfare of civilians you know, whenever you're afflicted by this belief that you can address insecurity in all of its forms, especially through a set of militarized and securitized tools, and, and quite often in secret, you're going to look past a lot of the risks attendant in, in what it is that you're doing. And I think over time, we've seen evidence that, you know, the risks of these, these programs and even this approach are very real. So of course, you know, we know that the use of force, especially in secret to counter 
terrorists using this kind of global war on terrorism paradigm has led to not only, you know, violations of IHL, arguably, but also just, you know, civilian harm that's occurred as a result of the direct use of force and direct harm that's experienced by it. It shifts the risk of harm and, and the response to harm, uh, the response to attacks away from, you know, government actors to, you know, the local population in a lot of places. Um, and whether that's because, you know, it provokes local groups to respond violently or because those groups then seek, you know, shelter and concealment uh, within communities and within the civilian population, um, it certainly transfers risk. You know, two, I think the security cooperation enterprise, generally speaking, goes too far to enable forces that are too little constrained by oversight or accountability, uh, and therefore really, you know, increases the risk that you're going to contribute even unintentionally to the risk of human rights abuses, you know, with impunity. Certainly in the US and in the UK, we've seen 20 years now, if not longer, of aligning massive increase of support with a lot of causes that, you know, the people of the UK or the US may not share or support. Um, you can get into some of the local political dynamics that are certainly manipulated and distorted by some of these security cooperation and support programs. Um, I think Afghanistan uh, definitely shows the I think the hazard of overstating the perspective effectiveness of these uh, interventions for the way that the public is really asked to assume the risk when they fail uh, in ways that can be very tragic. And then, you know, I think as a final point, I'd note that over time, we've also seen a weakening of the kind of international norms and, and constraints that were put in place for a reason that we may wish were stronger at some point in the future, um, which doesn't only affect people in the countries where we're currently operating, but I think could come back to affect us in more meaningful ways in the future, which touches on the very last point I want to raise, um, which is just the way that this entire experience has come at a cost to our own societal and civic health. I mean, the preoccupation with remote warfare and the prevention of terrorism, I think, has come at a pretty significant cost to our societal resilience uh, and our emphasis on resilience over precautions and prevention of terrorism. The way that we've allowed the gradual erosion, in some cases, the acute and precipitous erosion of of civil and human rights uh, with very few safeguards. And then I think we're all learning now, of course, that we've also spent 20 years distracted from much more significant problems and priorities that now we're going to have to play some catch up on. Abby, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, first, just to agree with what Dan said, especially that last point, I think you could see the 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 eroding of transparency and accountability around these activities and the way that it's not just senior policymakers within government but also wider legislatures that have allowed this to happen and you could see that in the the US case when soldiers were killed in Niger and everyone was saying to Congress why haven't you asked questions about this sooner and I think it's sort of understanding the risks is undermined by the drivers that drove remote warfare in the first instance like this idea that we wanted more secrecy around counterterrorism and the idea that this was, as you said, Larry, the least bad option in the eyes of some policymakers meant that fully understanding the risks has been undermined throughout this process. And we've exacerbated peace and stability and harm to civilians almost without realising in some cases. At times, it's more than just enabling certain partners or abusive regimes to abuse citizens, but almost enabling or greenlighting or endorsing authoritarian and abusive states. It's a powerful symbol to have US support for regimes who are abusing their citizens. And so you're not just providing US equipment or US training, but potentially also international legitimacy or political cover. You could say that that's what's happening at the moment with Western support to Egypt, who continues to be provided with 
with equipment and training under the guise of counterterrorism, but use as much of that support to detain opposition members, journalists and human rights defenders? And how much do we then provide political cover by continuing to do it? And added to this, a number of countries have manipulated Western decision making to pursue their own goals. You could see in Libya when the government of National Accords Prime Minister was calling for more support, that he was saying 800,000 illegal migrants on Libyan ground will have to leave Libya if we don't receive this support. Even when it's not a conscious decision to manipulate Western policymakers, there is the likelihood that forces and states which the US assists pursue different political agendas in the long run to the detriment of national security and regional peace and stability. So for instance, the anti-ISIS coalition worked with groups like the Peshmerga or the popular mobilization forces in Iraq or the Syrian democratic forces in Syria, who shared the short-term goal of defeating ISIS, but differed strongly in their long-term political aims for the region. And Robert Marley said of counter-terrorism partners in the region at the time that their gaze was fixed on the wars after the war against the Islamic State. And so there's a risk that in supporting some of these partners, we exacerbate the drivers of these future wars by focusing on short-term aims. And there may be just two specific risks when it comes to arms sales, that there's the risk that equipment gifted or sold by the US and others could be diverted to partners other than the intended recipients, or equally that commercial arms sales can feed into bribery and corruption. Reckoning with 9-11. So we'll be talking in the next episode about how this kind of thinking and approach affected specific countries. But one country we haven't touched on yet is Nigeria. Nigeria is Africa's most populous nation and has since 2002 been engaged in a conflict with Boko Haram, which also spawned Islamic State West Africa province in 2016. Joining us to provide some insight here is Victoria Ibezim Ohari, who leads Spaces for Change, which works to infuse human rights into social and economic governance processes in Nigeria. I would like to start by giving a little bit of some context about Nigeria. The first is to start by acknowledging that indeed Nigeria is facing significant levels of terrorist threats. In many parts of the country, especially in the northeastern part of the country, they are volatile, they are facing protracted insurgency operations and religious extremism. So there are two major armed groups operating in Nigeria's northeastern region. Both of them are born out of the Boko Haram insurgency. Um, the first is the JS, which is the Jamatu Alusuna, and the other is the popularly is popularly known as ISWAP, which is the Islamic State West Africa Province, which is a group breakaway group from the JAS. So both of them are notably called um, Boko Haram. They have sworn allegiance to ISIS and have as the objective the establishment of an Islamic caliphate that will practice what they call pure Islam. So ISWAP is dominant in the areas around the Lake Chad Basin in Borno Yobe State in the northeastern part of the country, whereas the JS holds sway in the expansive Sambisa Forest in the northern middle part of Borno State that is also in the northeastern part of the country. So between the two terrorist groups, they've killed over 70,000 people. 
since 2009 and they've displaced about 2.5 million according to estimates so there are still other activities going on in northeastern and other parts of northern nigeria but with the rise in terrorism in nigeria um we now have what we call the office of national security advisor according to our national um, terrorism act it is this office of the national security advisor onsa there is a coordinating office for nigeria's counterterrorism of um, efforts Nigeria has also imitated the UN Office of um, Counterterrorism, UNOCT, developed what they call the CTC, which is the Counterterrorism Committee at the national level. So these national level initiatives, they replicate the global initiatives that we see at the UN level and they direct, inform the military strategy that have been used over time. So military onslaught on the terrorists it has led to the deaths of many of the insurgents, while some of them have in recent times reportedly surrendered to the Nigerian army. But despite these advances, there are quite a number of challenges that are going on. There's frustration about some of the community engagement strategies in communities. There's frustration about consequences of military action, especially civilians caught in the crossfire between the terrorist groups and military. There are also frustrations linked directly to the security situation in the area, such as the prevalence of drugs and crimes. So amid these frustrations, Boko Haram has strong propaganda campaigns that festered. They are capturing the emotions and aspirations of young people in the regions where they operate. So these young people are already disenfranchised by lack of opportunities and they are victims of heavy-handed security operations. What do you think, Victoria? What impact do you think external support and funding for counterterrorism under this trend that Dan and Abby described so well towards remote warfare has been having in, in Nigeria? In the local context, we've been feeling some shocks and stresses on the counterterrorism mechanisms, especially in relation to the type of support and funding that the country receives from its allies and partners all over the world, especially the United States. Um, the United States has provided funding for various military training and education programs since Nigeria waged the war um, against terrorism. Nigeria has also relied on U.S. arms sales in the past and even presently to address multiple security um, challenges. A more recent example happened in July this year. We started seeing how AMSIL has become a new issue, both in the foreign policy conversations between the two countries. Um, what basically happened in July was that U.S. lawmakers put a hold on a proposal to sell almost $1 billion worth of weapons to Nigeria over concerns about possible human rights abuses by the Nigerian government. For me, I think there are two issues arising from these conversations about external support and the conditionalities attached to it. The first is whether the military is doing enough to minimize civilian casualties in their campaign against Boko Haram insurgency or religious extremism or other violent insurrectionists. And the second question is whether making human rights a condition for AMSEL is smart foreign policy. These are not questions I can answer myself alone, but uh, I think there are consequences and there is need to strike a healthy balance on both sides. The foreign government like Nigeria, they will simply turn to other regimes like Russia, China for their arms. 
and the U.S. would have lost the economic benefit or the political influence or the relationship they've enjoyed with the country receiving the arms. Thanks, Victoria, for summarizing all of this so well. Reckoning with 9-11. So we're up to speed on our first evolution in the war on terror, this trend towards remote warfare. Now let's turn to our second topic, countering violent extremism, which is known in the trade as CVE. For more insights into this, we spoke with Jordan Street, who has researched CVE's impacts in a number of contexts with Safer World. Jordan, can you talk us through when and why CVE began to emerge? Some people would say that the starting point for CVE was 2011. Um, and this is when President Obama's team produced uh, a national strategy for empowering local partners to prevent violent extremism. But really, the, the concept of CVE was introduced much earlier. The, the UK government's prevent program probably could be regarded as, as the first practical example of CVE. And this came about after the attacks in Madrid in 2004 and then the, the July 2005 attacks in London. Many other European countries adopted similar national strategies. For instance, actually, then the, the whole EU CT strategy in 2005 had a big prevent strand in it too. But it, it is true that these didn't translate into a shared global policy approach or agenda until later. So, so it is actually the, the Obama administration's initial effort to move beyond those more militarized approaches that had been prioritized in the years following 9-11 and towards an approach that focused on root causes that really was the catalyst for CVE to emerge as a global agenda. And so from then on, it became a much more widespread thing. Can you illustrate how broad this uptake has been? Well, certainly a key moment uh, was the 2014 rise of ISIS. I was living and working in New York at that time. And, and anyone who was there around the UN at that point will remember that this completely quit the UN Security Council and UN officials, notably around the issue of foreign nationals traveling up to join with violent groups in Syria and Iraq. Um, but in, in DC, it was the same. And this led uh, the Obama White House to host a summit on CVE in February 2015. And then uh, President Obama hosted a high-level event uh, with other world leaders at the opening of the UN General Assembly in September 2015 too. So this really led the EU and the UN to start changing tack as well. And not long after that UN General Assembly event, um, Secretary General Ban Ki's Moon plan of action to prevent violent extremism was finalized. And this began to position the UN system as a key implementation partner for this new global agenda which up until that point had kind of steered away from, from counterterrorism. Uh, this new plan came with 70 recommendations for action at global, regional and national level, and was really a crucial moment for the spread of this agenda. So this is really the point uh, where countering violent extremism turns into a task sort of for all governments around the world. And uh, around the time of the White House summit in February 2015, you have... UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appearing on US television, affirming that violent extremism was the greatest threat to world stability and affirming that... Everybody should get involved in this. He then goes on to explain the need to do more to tackle the roots of extremism. We have to address terrorism and violent extremism in a multi-dimensional way. Uh, starting from the root causes, uh, political, social, economic, and cultural aspect. But military means may be effective in some sense, but 
that's not all the answers to resolve this one. Uh, we have to get at the root causes of this issue. So good governance is an answer. And how to educate and how to send a message to many people and how to protect the human rights and human dignity of many marginalized group of people. How to make sure that the people are feeling some sense of belonging to their own society. So, Jordan, from this point on, this global prioritization of countering or preventing violent extremism just kept on going, right? Absolutely. Um, PV and CV activities and programs really did then start to spread like wildfire. Um, there's really too many points to mention to illustrate this, um, but maybe just a few. I mean, our friends at ISS had done a really good survey where they documented at least 200 PV projects across West, Central and East Africa already by 2018. And, and as of 2020, the UN had reported that they had either implemented or were implementing over 400 PV projects. And this is part of their annual budget of 520 million uh, for counterterrorism across the UN. And these projects were across 100 countries. So it's really incredibly widespread. One of the reasons why this kind of happened was that donor governments began to shift and the OECD guidelines, which actually track and enable how development aid could be spent, included PV activities as part of this overseas development assistance. So no longer was it just military resources going to counterterrorism, but development resources were going to it as well now. So why has CV become so widespread? What are some of the positive reasons for adopting countering violent extremism approaches in your view? Well, by 2011 and, and definitely by 2014, I think it was clear that the mainstream approach to counterterrorism wasn't working. And those within the Obama administration and, and the UN system knew this and, and so did try to present an alternative engagement strategy, you know, one that would better respect human rights and human security, one that would tackle wider factors and attitudes that, that underpinned or pushed individuals into violent movements. And then, you know, one that would actually attempt to offer this whole of society response. Um, and because, I mean, the military counterterrorism deployments we saw in the first decade of the 21st century, even when strategies were updated or shifted to try and focus on root cause issues, these deployments, they didn't have the capability to perform these tasks in any meaningful way. So, you know, there is no doubt that the premise underpinning CV was an improvement. Um, and in the case of the UN, I think, you know, the decision to, to steer from this countering violent extremism language and move towards prevention language, yeah. I think also was considered to be more constructive. And to be fair to some of the proponents of CVE, I mean, this approach did have some, some strengths. It offered a way to focus on recruitment into and departure from violent movements. It could socialize important concepts, um, thinking about gendered impacts and human rights standards of any interventions. And, and ultimately, it was a much more palatable framing for authorities. So, you know, if um, these strategies depended on cooperating with local authorities, this would a enable a policy framework that addressed root causes of violence where, where other policy frameworks were, were less manageable for, for those authorities. But then... At the same time, as your work has explained, Jordan, CV has some significant downsides, and there are many that question both its effectiveness and uh, its risks of doing harm. Can you explain? Yes. I mean, 
I think it's actually quite clear that this wider CV agenda comes with significant risks. And Safe World's work, together with many others, has documented this in many places. Um, this list is long of the risks, um, but there are a few that really stand out. At its core, there has been a real problem with definitions and labeling. And this is something that the CV and PV agenda has really struggled to escape from. So, you know, violent extremism has never been defined by the UN. And so many states around the world take PVE to mean what they want it to mean. Uh, this can mean that programs funded by the US, the UN, other donor states uh, that ostensibly are aimed at working on root causes of violence end up targeting groups that authorities define as extremists, despite no tangible or material link to violent movements. This means that, in essence, PV and CV has sometimes been abused to crack down on political opponents, journalists, human rights defenders, and is a frequent cause of stigmatization for predominantly young Muslim men. Two other important dynamics to probably note here are about the impact of this agenda is the role in which they have reinforced abuse of authority security approaches, and one in which external security agendas have been imposed on local realities. The UN's enthusiasm for PBE has led to this rollout of these national action plans on PBE all around the world. This is a very standard UN thing, get a policy agenda, make a national plan, and then do programming around it. But these plans have enabled authorities working in concert with the UN to effectively absolve themselves of responsibility for conflict and design intervention strategies that solely focus on the groups or individuals of their choice. Now, as donors and the UN have reorientated their funding focus towards this agenda, what this has done is then drag civil society groups, women's rights organizations, youth peace builders, and then even these large INGOs into this agenda and move them away from peace building work, from violent prevention interventions, and from, you know, programs that are building trust. So what this means is that instead of investing in transformative change and, and things that these local organizations or, or you know, long-standing uh, national organizations know work and addressing actual grievances, we have projects that focus on ideology, superficial counter-messaging programs, and, and at its very worst, we have shell projects that are effectively used for surveillance purposes by the state. So our work goes into depth on many of these issues, and, and we've spoken to people all around the world that have seen the downsides play out in practice, from the Philippines to Somalia to Kyrgyzstan to Egypt to Iraq. And it, this is not just a one-off thing. It's also maybe just a final note. It's important to, to say that this is not just a case of hindsight. Many of these risks were articulated by, by many of us in our community uh, in 2014, in 2015. Um, but now six or seven years into this implementation of the agenda, we're seeing that these are actually that these worries are no longer risks, they're actually harmful impacts. Thank you, Jordan. So CV, from what you explain, was growing increasingly popular and it was a way to tackle some of the causes of the war on terror, but then it fell down on being a very partial way for governments to work on this problem while not confronting some other questions that were thornier about their own tactics and their own behaviors. And it ultimately, it wasn't very effective. Let's bring in perspectives from our other guests on this episode, starting with Dan Mahanti again. Dan, during the Obama years, how did you think of CVE and how do you see the report card of CVE programs looking back now? You don't have to look too far to find proceedings that took place around 2008 to 2010, where 
you know, you had some of the most abusive governments in the world sitting around the table agreeing violently on what should be done about countering violent extremism. I think you saw around this time uh, really growing into full maturity a set of highly problematic uh, initiatives, largely in the West, designed to monitor and essentially instrumentalize, uh, especially Muslim communities, but other communities as well, and a broader effort even globally to co-opt and distract civil society from playing its public oversight role into countering violent extremism. And I think that continues to this day. And, and in my mind, those are some of the, the worst expressions of this phenomenon. Victoria, can you tell us a little about countering violent extremism efforts in Nigeria? Has CVE programming been a big thing in your country? Do you think these efforts are going well? So our CVE efforts in Nigeria primarily respond to these threats of violent extremism and Boko Haram terrorism in the northern part of the country. So it was not until 2013 that the um, U.S. designated Boko Haram as a foreign terrorist organization. And it was also specially designated as a global terrorist by um United Nations Security Council. That was as per Resolution 2083. So CV in Nigeria is managed by a number of mechanisms. Um, it's a big thing, um, like I, as, as you can imagine from the description I gave, the expansion of Boko Haram from a single Islamic state to now two factions of a terrorist group operating in vast regions of the country, especially in the northeastern part of the country and across the left chart, business spilling into parts of Niger, Chad, and parts of Nigeria. So you would see that initially the CV programs was like a multinational joint tax force initiative. It was established then, uh, made up of Nigerian and Chadian forces to cartel arms smuggling across the border of Lake Chad. So we also have like policy responses to violent extremism and um, terrorism in the country. We have the policy framework and national action plan for preventing and countering violence extremism, which we call the PCVE. And it was developed in view of the report of the United Nations Secretary General on the plan of action to prevent violent extremism issued in December 2015. And in that document, member states were encouraged to nationalize the plans of action. I already talked about some of the challenges with the military approach. The government started shifting away to what they call the amnesty approach. And amnesty simply means forgiveness or repentance of uh, former Boko Haram fighters. It's being rolled out as an integral part of the deradicalization process. The decartalization program is the alternative that the government rolled out to militarization of the response to Boko Haram terrorism. Recently, no fewer than 1,000 Boko Haram and ISWAP members, they let down their arms and surrendered to the troops. Nigeria introduced what they call Operation Safe Corridor. The Operation Safe Corridor is a military facility in one of the northern states. It houses um, like a board experiment in jihadist deradicalization. So at that side, Boko Haram fighters that have laid down their arms that have, in quote, repented and surrendered to the government amnesty offer, they are going through a program to reintegrate them and reintegrate them back into the society. So according to state actors, they say repentance is the beginning of the end of insurgency. Boko Haram fighters, are they really looking, uh, those ones looking for reintegration, have they genuinely repented or are they some people say, are they spies or are they um, merely 
driven from Boko Haram by hunger and the harsh conditions in the forests where they are camped. So there are rising tensions and anger, especially from the victims and communities displaced by Boko Haram violence towards the CVE programs. The people in Nigeria still has what they call IDPs, internal displaced persons, and they are like IDP camps in many parts of the country. And the people displaced by Boko Haram violence are not happy with the CVE programs, especially those programs uh, facilitating the rehabilitation and reintegration of former fighters. The reason is because they are still languishing in pain and sorrow caused by the activities of Boko Haram terrorists in the Northeast. Government is spending a lot of money on this deradicalization program. And this type of spending has two effects. Um, the first is that it sort of energizes a surgency and is pitting the victims against the attackers. And again, for many civil society advocates, we think that this type of amnesty offer removes the burden of accountability on states because states bear the primary responsibility to secure lives and property. Um, thirdly, I think there, it is widening the polarization between the Christian South and the Muslim North. Groups in the North, which is predominantly Muslim, they are in support of the policy. They have welcomed the amnesty offer. The predominantly Southern Christian groups in southern part of the country, they are opposed to the idea. They feel that the fighters must face retribution and pay for their crimes. I think a lot of the CV efforts, there's a lot of copying and pasting going on. Particularly the amnesty offer has been very difficult in practice, reintegrating former fighters, former terrorists back into the society. I um, these were practices copied from other contests where they were successfully implemented, but is whether it should be universalized, that type of alternative to militarization, um, when whether it fits all local contests, is another question that PCV efforts at the global level need to take into consideration. A lot of countries, especially in the global south, the level of participation that they have in the development of these global or universal um, terrorism standards and frameworks. They have very minimal participation. So there is a bit of incompatibility when standards are imported into the local context. It creates, also produces a lot of tensions that most times they do not have control over, allowing countries, especially countries in the global south, to ensure that their own local realities and priorities are reflected in those standard-setting documents. I think it will go a long way. Reckoning with 9-11 I think Victoria's sense of CVE being globalised into Nigeria, but struggling with the local sensitivities could be a great subject for a whole other series, but We'll come back to how counter-terror and countering violence and extremism played out in other specific places next time. Now, let's hear more about some of the global implications of this push to counter violent extremism in societies across the world from someone who's thought about it a lot and consulted about it in a lot of places. Just by way of introduction, I want to make sure that what I say is not understood as being anecdotal, that the progress study on youth peace and security involved very widespread consultations with young people, 281 focus groups in 44 countries across the world, seven regional consultations. The youth voice that was captured in this, I made the promise in that in those conversations with young people that if they didn't hear themselves and their voices and see themselves in the report we produced, 
then we'd failed. And this is really important because this is really what we heard from them and the authenticity of their voice. This was Graeme Simpson of Interpeace. Graeme worked for the UN Security Council on a global study on youth peace and security, which found widespread anger at the way the youth were being stereotyped as potential violent extremists. So one of the key things that young people described and that was very acute in their experience of, of this issue was the stereotypes to which they were viewed. They described very clearly the kind of archetypal image of a young man with a gun as defining uh, how young men were seen. And young women often consigned to the passive status of victimhood. And in, in a way, both were seen to be young people as inherently associated with violence. And the problem with this and what the study really uh, draws out is that it, it wasn't just about attitudes to young people. It produced what we refer to as a high degree of policy panic, policy responses, massive investments that then treated young people primarily as a threat. On the one hand, a youth, the, 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 the assumption that large youth populations in poverty-affected or conflict-affected societies were inevitably going to participate in violence. Young immigrants seen as crossing borders and bringing violence and threats of crime and criminality and terrorism. And most explicitly, the assumption that all young people were somehow in danger of being recruited into extremist armed groups or terrorist organizations. And the reality is that all of these things just defy the reality of young people's lived experience. The vast majority of young people don't join armed groups, aren't members of gangs. This is a tiny sliver of the population. And yet what the policy panic does is it reorients all of the, the sort of policy priorities, the spending is all reoriented around treating young people as a risk and investment in hard security responses to them. And the devastating consequences of this was also articulated by young people. They talked about how it undermined trust between young people and their governments. And the trustworthiness of governments that was, was seen to be preying on young people was really undermined. So completely counterproductive. They often described their primary relationship with their governments as being through the institutions of security and criminal justice because of this. And they also talked about how their change agency, their creativity, their, the protest and dissent that is so much a part of young people's contribution to peace and to change in societies was often criminalized and securitized. And so in the end, the consequence is young people are saying, we are not just the victims of terrorism and extremism, but we are the victims of the counter-terrorism and countering of violent extremism that our governments put in place in response to this. Indeed, young people often talked about being more frightened of their governments than they were of terrorists or extremist organizations. And I guess the most important dimension of this is that what young people were saying to, this, to us, and this is really captured very powerfully in the missing piece in the progress study, is that until we address their experiences of exclusion, what they described as the violence of exclusion. We will never begin to touch on the violence of extremism, and in fact, we may aggravate it. And what do you believe are the implications of this long term? It was really powerful for me to hear the way in which young people describe this exclusion. And you'll see why this is so important to the way we understand 
the consequences of counterterrorism or, vi- or violent extremism measures you know that that have in a sense skewed this policy agenda and skewed the way we spend money young people talked about exclusion as being about political and exclusion from meaningful political participation they talked about it as integrally about their exclusion from the economy and the absence of an economic stake. They talked about it as being gender-based exclusion and the distinct experiences of young women was emphasized. They talked about education and exclusion from education systems, which were all about them, but in which they had no say over the policy and and shaping of this. They talked about exclusion from protections in human rights, that uh, they didn't have the protections of the Convention of the Rights of the Child If what governments are doing and if what the international system is doing and if what donors are investing in is not the dignity, the asset value, the aspirations of young people, but all of these arenas of engagement are increasingly shaped as being about young people as a threat. I mean, the idea that young people's quest for jobs, for meaningful economic stake is rather envisaged as dealing with the risk of young people having idle hands is a perfect illustration of the fact that this is like not speaking to the asset value, to the resourcefulness, to the creativity and the resilience of young people as peace builders, but is constantly viewing them not through this lens of resilience, but as a risk. And I think this is devastating for what it does to to society, for the trillions that end up being invested in these programs and these orientations that should be about young people's sort of contribution as peace builders, but is skewed in devastating ways by the fact that young people are treated as a threat, that this is all a backdoor route to a discourse around counterterrorism and countering violent extremism, which casts young people as a threat. We lose the creativity and innovation of young people's contribution. It is entirely counterproductive. Graham, I'm so glad you made the time to tell us all this. Thank you. Thank you. Reckoning with 9-11. Our five guests have told us a lot. So where has this episode with, with this focus on evolutions in this faltering war on terror taken us? Those who wanted to move away from the destabilizing military interventionism of the early war on terror were very much right to want alternatives. But in many ways, overall, they kept on going with a big, big emphasis and investment in this war through air wars, through partnered operations, through train and equip programs and ghost wars um, that involve special operatives. And all of this kept on going within a more hidden idea of war. Yeah. And so, you know, all this may well have meant less body bags coming back to Western countries and kept the wars out of the headlines. But it's clear that it hasn't generated stability. It put power and weapons into the wrong hands. It fed in many cases into worsening conditions for civilians that have allowed grievances to mount. And then when, when it comes to countering violent extremism programs, Again, these are an attempt to take a less military approach and maybe address support for violent groups at their roots. In many cases, these programs have ended up stereotyping and stigmatizing and alienating local people. And in some cases, they've undermined civil society from developing their own strategies to to improve the situation and have failed to grasp this uncomfortable nettle of government's bad behavior. So these evolutions all tried to sanitise the war on terror to make it look sustainable, at least to Western eyes. 
but they haven't proven to be a basis for bringing it to an end. And as the global war on terror kept going, authoritarian elites around the world were growing ever more adept at weaponizing it for their own ends, as we will hear next time on Reckoning with 9-11. This special war pod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by the podcast company. Next time on The Reckoning, weaponizing the war on terror. How authoritarians around the world manipulated war on terrorism for their own ends. Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org. Produced in cooperation with Safer World. 